thanks for a little bit of tie over from last session, and then we'll get started in our session tonight on the doctrine of eternal security. Doctrine of eternal security. Remember basically what they are saying when they say unconditional eternal security. They are saying that from the moment of conversion forward, unconditional meaning that there is nothing they can do, no sin they can commit that will ever separate them from that time forward from the presence of the Lord. They are saved. Unconditional eternal security. Now when they make that commitment, that statement, then it becomes their burden of proof to show that every scripture will say that one cannot fall. Remember their argument, unconditional eternal security. And at that moment, they are obligated by, by statement and by definition to, to take the scriptures and every scripture they quote must say that on your side, our side. We're saying that salvation is conditional. You were saved under certain conditions. On our side, every scripture must say that. And it does. Believe me. I've been out there where the rubber meets the road. And I've, you know, I've butted heads with the best of them out there. Ours say, our argument is stated in scriptures. Theirs doesn't. Now let me show you one of their favorites. One of their favorites is the prodigal son. Now remember the argument, unconditional, they cannot fall. They say that in the prodigal son, he was born a son. And that's true. Being born a son, even when he was in the pig pen, afar and astray from the father's house, though he was astray, yet he was the son. Ever have them tell you that? But what's their argument? Their argument says he couldn't leave home. Their argument says you can't fall. You can never go away. So, even that scripture is against him in their logic, in their argument, he could never leave, he could never fall. Nothing he could ever do would make him leave the Father's house or the Father's graces. Yet the scripture says he left on his own free will. And the scripture says openly, when he returned, the Father said, kill the fatted calf. Get out the robes. Let's, let's make a feast. For he who was dead to me has come back to life. Meaning that if that boy would have died astray and afar from the father's house, the father would have disowned him. That's our argument. Now, backsliding. When one returns, yes, there's forgiveness. And as long as a person lives, God will call them back if they'll come back. But if they refuse to come back, 
God must do what he promised to do. Okay? So uh, our argument is not against the backslider returning. Our argument simply proves by Scripture openly that one can fall from grace. And the Bible says that openly. So remember what they're saying, and by virtue of commitment, they must, every Scripture, prove what they define. And the Bible does not say that. Now, in the book of Romans, chapter 8, uh, we read of predestination. Okay. Um, Romans 8 and 30. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. Ephesians 1, 11. Talks of predestination and those predestinated. That word predestination and predestinated there simply shows the attribute of God known as uh, omnipotence, omnipotence, omnipresence. He's omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. He's omnipotence, meaning he has all knowledge of everything at all times. He's omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere at the same time. So in the omnipotence of God, the all-knowingness of God, yes, God knew from the foundation of the earth and predicted from the foundation of the earth that there would be a church body. This, these scriptures speaks of the knowledge of God concerning the church body that would eventually be saved eternally. This is not the language that they need to support their doctrine that God chose a certain few from the foundation of the earth. And for those certain few, Christ died. Those certain few, both Augustine and Calvin calls the elect, did nothing to inherit their salvation and can do nothing to lose their salvation. The Calvinist needs more language than Romans and Ephesians to support that because the very logic of their argument is against the logic of Scripture. The body of Christ, yes, was predestinated. And God provided a, a, a sacrifice for the saving of that church. But to the whole world, he gives an invitation to come. That he who thirsts comes, that all come. Let them come and drink of the waters of life freely. To those who will not accept his offer, then the Bible speaks openly of their damnation. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 speaks of those who receive that the love of the truth, God sent them strong delusions. They might believe a lie and be damned, that they might all be damned who believe that the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We have open language scripture for that. Okay, so that's not talking about the elect that Augustine and Calvin spoke of. Now let's go one more thing here to show you the logics, the, the illogical thinking of those people. When they say that the elect was chosen from the foundation of the earth, 
They did nothing to inherit their salvation. They can do nothing to lose their salvation. Again, they boxed themselves up logically. Because really, they can't tell you if they're saved or not. Only God would know that. Since God predestined that, since that's reserved to the omnipotence of God, then even they would not know if they're going to be saved in the end. Only God knows that because God knows who would be chosen and God knows who would be saved. Okay? So that creates a problem for them. That means that someone could start out doing what they tell you to do, to be saved, just believe in the Lord, and do everything possible to please their denomination and live up to the standards that they set and then get to heaven at the judgment bar and God say, no, I'm sorry. You are not in that number. Or on the other hand, they said in their theory, they did nothing to inherit their salvation and could do nothing to lose it. By their thinking and on the premise of their logic, it just might be many who didn't care about God that uh, did everything possible they could do to be sinful and live sinful all their lives and walk up to the judgment boy expecting to be condemned. And God said, you're the lucky guy today. I predestined you from the foundation of the earth. You were in my number. Now, you did nothing to inherit your salvation, did nothing to keep it, and could do nothing to lose it. But I had you in mind all the time to so come on in, sinner. The very logic of that nullifies the purpose of Calvary. If God had a number that he predestined that was going to be saved irregardless, then why was Calvary needed? That was a waste of time in God's plan. If he knew who was going to be saved from the beginning, they did nothing to inherit it and could do nothing to lose it. Didn't have to do nothing to keep it. And Calvary was a waste of time. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll stay with the truth. Thank God for the word. Let me put your mind at ease tonight. You Pentecostals have nothing to be ashamed of. I tell all over the country, Pentecostals, get your chin off your chest. Square your shoulders. You've got the most reasonable gospel in the world. The most scripturally correct the most historically accurate and by far the most logical. If a Pentecostal will live according to the Bible, they're going to be the most balanced, the most happy, the most secure, the most pleasant, the most Christ-like person in town. Thank God for truth. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Praise God. Are you glad for the liberty that you have in Jesus tonight? Let's put our hands together and praise the Lord. Now, one other, one other scripture that, that uh, they use, and then I'll move on. Romans 10 and 9. Have you ever heard it? 
If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Ever had that news on you? And they say, this is the word of God. You have to agree. This is the Bible. This is the word of God. But one of their tricks is to always keep you on the defensive, to give you no background, to keep certain closet doors closed. They will not tell you that Paul was writing to an established church. They would be against their logic. The, the, the church at Rome had been established for many years before Paul wrote the Roman letter. Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, there were strangers from Rome who received the Holy Ghost, A.D. 33. Went back to Rome, and there in the city of Rome, the city of the pagan mythologies, established a Jewish apostolic colony to which Paul writes a letter many years later. He writes this Roman letter to, to save people, an established church. All the epistle was written to established churches. In these established churches, there were two divisions, two groups. There was Jews and Gentiles. To the Gentiles, he has to deal with the moral questions because the Gentiles were very immoral. All pagans are immoral. So that's why he talks about the morality there, holiness and so forth, because these people came from immoral backgrounds. All pagans are polytheists. They believe in more than one God. So when he talks about the logic of one God, he's addressing the element of the, of the, of the uh, Gentiles in those churches. On the other side, you had another element, Jews. You didn't have to talk to the Jews about, about holiness and righteousness because as far back in the law, they were very, very holy and moral people. So when he talked about holiness, that wasn't to the Jews. They were trained in holiness. He didn't have to address the, the issue of God because they believed, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. Their problem was they didn't believe that Jehovah, Elohim, had become flesh. That's why the Jews had Jesus killed. Caiaphas asked him, Art thou the Christ? And Jesus says, Thou hast said it from this this time forward hereafter, you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, coming in great clouds of glory. In that point, he ripped his clothes and said, He's blasphemed. He's made himself equal to Elohim or to, to God. So they didn't believe that Jesus Christ was God manifest in the flesh. That's why Philip and Thomas asked him to show us the Father in St. John chapter 14. And he asked, answered them and said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Know him and have seen him. So that was the problem with the Jews and the Gentiles in the, in the Pauline and in the general epistles. Okay? So when Paul writes this Roman epistle, he's writing to save people. He's telling the Jews, 
that if you don't accept and believe that Jesus is the Christ, then uh, you can't be saved. Okay? Now, I would find it very strange that if this is the plan of salvation, then that would make Paul very inconsistent. Now back up two chapters to chapter 8. If the Calvinist says you don't have to have the Holy Ghost and base it on Romans chapter 9, I mean chapter 10, verse 9, then why is it two chapters prior in chapter 8, verse 9? But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, what's the Spirit of Christ? Say it. If any man has not the Spirit of Christ, notice that Spirit is capitalized, that's the Holy Ghost. He is none of his. So here Paul says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, which is the Holy Ghost, you can't belong to Christ. You're none of his. Now, is Paul changing his mind in two chapters? If so, he's inconsistent. If he did, he'll have to apologize to the people in Acts chapter 19, the people at Ephesus. They've been baptized by an authentic prophet, John the Baptist. Paul, we baptized them and imposed the Holy Ghost on them. If he, if he changed his mind there, then he's inconsistent. He'd have, to, he'd, have to, he'd have to apologize to those people. Then if he, if, he, if he says these two things here inconsistently, then again he changes his mind to the next letter that he wrote. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, that you come behind a no spiritual gift waiting for the coming of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 12, he speaks of, of nine spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He says in that chapter, I thank my God I speak in tongues more than you all. More than all of you. So if Paul changes his mind that quickly, then he's an inconsistent writer. Moreover, if he told one group one thing and then changed his mind, he lied. I'll prove that in the Bible. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul writes to the Galatians and said, Though we are an angel from heaven, though me and my assistant are an angel from heaven, preached unto you any other gospel which we have preached, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than ye have received, let him be accursed. So here Paul says, if I come back, or an angel would come back and tell you anything different than I've told you, let me or the angel be accursed. Again, I thank God for the word. Praise God. We stand on solid ground. On Christ's solid rock I stand. All else is sinking sand. Come on, let's praise the Lord, everybody. All right. 
Now, for the remainder of the time tonight, I like to deal with the subject of tongues. As you've already found out, this is one of the issues of the denominal world. In the offset tonight, I'd like to read my text from Mark chapter 16. Jesus said, and always base your statements on what the Word of God says, not what you feel. And don't accept what they feel as doctrine. I got into it with a Calvinist the other night from, from Germany. Coach Bailey had gone over there and, and did some speaking in Germany and met this gentleman. So when he came back to America, he visited with Coach Bailey. And uh, we were he, talking and, and uh, uh, in the conversation, I'd screwed the lid down pretty tight on him. So he said, uh, well, Brother Johnson said, uh, I want to ask you a question, if I may, he said. He said, would you say that Billy Graham is lost? That's the old trick. You see, just like, just like uh, the leaders of the Catholic Church resorted to their own to prove their point, uh, so they, 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 they do the same thing. Uh, they will resort to external forces from the Bible to try to establish their point. So I said, sir, I am not the judge of any man. I would take no pleasure in judging Dr. Graham. I said, I will never take the pleasure in condemning any man. But I said, well, neither will I allow you to go outside the Bible to take a person to prove a doctrine. I said, uh, but I do find it strange that Dr. Graham said in his last book, I'm afraid that I've disgraced grace by making it so easy that some have missed the kingdom of God. And I do find that statement strange. I said, Dr. Graham is not an apostle. I am not an apostle. Dr. Graham did not write the Bible. I did not write the Bible. He is not cited as the authentic source of proven or disproven scripture. We must stay with the word of God. Okay? So in the book of St. Mark, chapter 16, I read, Jesus says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Underline those words. He that believeth, that's basic, and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned or shall be condemned. And these signs shall follow them in my name that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. If they drink a deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. 
Jesus definitely cites the tongues as being one of the credentials that would follow all believers. Tongues. All right? Tongues. First of all, when I'm talking with these type people, I ask them, is the doctrine of tongues or the teaching of tongues mentioned anywhere in the scriptures? They have to answer in the affirmative and say yes. Because the Bible did predict in the Old Testament that tongues would be a part of the New Testament church. There is a six-step criteria by which you judge all doctrines to be true. First of all, if a doctrine did not evolve in the historical period from A.D. 96 until now, when I make my other statements, you'll understand that statement. And if that cardinal doctrine was not altered or changed in that period, that's the first criteria. Secondly, if that doctrine was taught by the early church, that church began A.D. 33. We have the clear, pristine record of that church for the next ensuing 66 years in the Bible. The clearest record of that church and its doctrines you find in the book of Acts and, and the epistles in that 66 year period. So you can see my first statement if that doctrine didn't start in the latter historical period or was changed. Secondly, if that doctrine was taught by the early church. Thirdly, if that doctrine was taught by the apostles, why the apostles? They were the chosen of Jesus. They were handpicked by Jesus. Their understanding was opened by Jesus. Luke 24, verse 45 through 48. All right. Fourthly, if Jesus spoke of those doctrines, obviously that's important. He's the founder of our faith. If Jesus didn't teach it, we better not teach it. All right. Fifthly, if those doctrines were taught or spoken of or prophesied by the prophets. Last but not least, if those doctrines has its grass root in the old tabernacle plan, then it's a true doctrine. Tongues definitely fits that criteria. Tongues did not start in 1900. At Azusa Street. Get that out of your mind. Get Azusa Street out of your mind. Azusa Street was great, but it was only a revival. I can show you many revivals in history where Holy Ghost outpourings took place long before denominations were named. Don't let them box you in that the Pentecostals come off on Azusa Street. We have, we have further grounds than that to base our doctrines on. Okay? Tongues were spoken of by the prophets. Isaiah 28 and 10. 
for with stammering lips and another tongue shall he speak unto this people. Isaiah 28, 10 and 11. For precept must be upon precept and line upon line, here a little and there a little. Verse 11. For with stammering lips shall he, and another tongue, with stammering lips and another tongue, will he speak unto this people. All right. So the prophets spoke of tongues that was to come. Jesus spoke of tongues that was to come. He said in Mark 16 that tongues would be one of the signs of the believer. The apostles taught tongues. Paul says, and Paul wrote over two-thirds of the New Testament, he said, I thank my God that I speak in tongues more than you all. He ends that chapter by saying, Forbid not to speak with tongues, but all things be done decently and in order. Not only did Paul teach tongues, and I'm going to come back to the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians in just a moment and show you the three functions of tongues there, but not only did Paul teach tongues and practice tongues, but he commands that tongues do not be forbidden in the church. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, that you come behind in no spiritual gift waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, tongues was practiced by the early church. We have many scriptures that shows that. I'll deal with those four models in just a moment. But tongues was practiced by the early church. So it is no question that the prophets spoke of it, Jesus spoke of it, the apostles taught it, and the church practiced it. You can cite tongues all the way through the other historical period, from 1896 until now, practiced by various groups under different guises and different names. Tongues has always been a part of apostolic-believing, Bible-believing people. The Bible speaks of a time when tongues will cease. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, Charity never faileth. Whether there shall be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there shall be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there shall be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For now we know in part and prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect, which is Jesus, when that that is perfect has come, then that which is done in part shall be done away. It is clear that the tongues was not under the law. It is clear that tongues began at Pentecost, A.D. 33. It is clear that the church practiced it in the recorded record of the scriptures, Acts and the Epistles. And it is clear that tongues will follow the believer, says Jesus, Mark 16, verse 16. It is clear that tongues will not cease until Jesus comes back. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, that you come behind in no spiritual gift waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
it is clear that it would cease. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8 and 9 and 10. When that that is perfect has come, Jesus, in the rapture, then tongue ceases, prophecy ceases, Holy Spirit baptism ceases, and God reverts back to the law of Moses for the seven years of the wrath of God or the tribulation. That's clear. So no one can deny that, first of all, it's not in the Scriptures. No one can deny that it was not prophesied by the prophets, spoken of by Jesus, advocated by Jesus, practiced and taught by the apostles, and then practiced by the church. No one can deny that. Okay? Now, in the four models of where the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost were received, tongues were spoken. First model was Acts chapter 2. The Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. I'll come back to that. The second model was the Samaritans. They received the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 8. The third model was Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, the Gentile, the Italian. He receives the Holy Ghost, he and his whole archives, or household, and they speak in tongues there. The fourth and final model was the Ephesians, the Jews, the converts of John the Baptist, that John found, I mean, that Paul found up in Ephesus, A.D. 54. They've been baptized by John as many as 27 years prior. John began baptizing the 15th year of divine Caesar, which was A.D. 27. You find that in Luke chapter 3. What was John's message? John said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But there cometh one after me whose shoe latches I might with loosen. Who shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire? But the Holy Ghost couldn't be given because Christ had been glorified. These Jews went back to the city of Ephesus and waited there possibly 27 years. In AD 54, Paul goes to, to Ephesus in Acts 19 and found these disciples of John the Baptist. They were believers because he asked them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? He, he knew they were believers. And they said, we had not heard with there being the Holy Ghost. Paul said, what do we baptize? They said, no, John's baptism. Then said Paul, John will baptize with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people, they shall believe on him which was to come after him that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were rebaptized. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came upon them, and they spake in tongues and prophesied. You have four models, ladies and gentlemen. They all received the Holy Ghost. And when they received the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, they spake with tongues. Now let me show you why they don't like the word Holy Ghost. <laughs> you scare them to death whenever you use the word Holy Ghost. They say Holy Spirit. I believe the Holy Ghost is the Holy Spirit, but they don't. And there's a reason they don't like to. You see, when you use the word spirit, that could be any spirit. 
And since they believe in three gods, they could say, well, some people has God's spirit, some people has Jesus' spirit, and some people has the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. And they like to make us believe we got the Holy Ghost, and that's sort of scary and spooky, you know, and sort of, but they've got the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit could be Christ's spirit or God's spirit. But I like the word Holy Ghost because from the Greek that means geist, the spirit of the, the departed one. Hallelujah. Jesus says there's a spirit that I'll go away, St. John chapter 16. And if I go away, I will not leave you comfortless, but I will send my spirit. I will be back. I will come and dwell in you. So the Holy Ghost is the spirit of the departed one, Jesus. Thank the Lord. Hallelujah. Now, watch this. They would like to create a scenario where they can receive Christ in their life and thereby get the Holy Spirit in their life differently than they did in the Bible. For after all, Jerome said that the Bible is used only for the reading to inspire the people. But the ecclesiastical doctrines are not established on the Bible. That's what Jerome said. And they are descendants of that, of that church. So therefore, they've got a convenient out. And if you hem them up real tight, they'll tell you, I don't care what the Bible says. That's beside the point. It's what we believe. That's exactly what Jerome said. And so therefore, sure, you can take the Bible and prove you have to get the Holy Ghost for Pentecostals. If that's inspiring to you, great. But we've got our system. And we know that we know that we know that we know. You ever hear him say that? Okay. That's what they're saying. Exactly what Jerome said. That the scriptures are not only the scriptures are only read and used for the inspiration of the people. But the ecclesiastical doctrines are not established in the Bible. And the ecclesiastical doctrines need the Bible for them to establish those doctrines. And so that's how they can create a scenario outside, external of the scriptures. We still believe the Bible says the same thing to all people. And if you're going to get Bible salvation, let's use the Bible models. And in all the Bible models, they speak with tongues, no question. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2. There were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews. Underline that word in your Bible. Devout men, not heathens. Devout men. Out of every nation under heaven. Now from verse, uh, from verse 9 down through verse 11, there are some 14 if I'm counting them right, 14 nations, colonies, where these Jews came from. At your convenience, look back in your Bibles, your Bible maps, and look at where all these nations were. But yet the Bible says they were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation in heaven. Again, this is how they explain this. 
To explain a little tongue, they said the phenomenon of Pentecost was that all these people gathered in to Jerusalem to learn these languages so they could go back and be missionaries to the various parts of the world. We're going to test that one in just a moment. But first, let me show you what happened. They do not explain to their people nor to you how these Jews got in these countries and what is the, the meat of this subject here in the Scripture. First, let's deal with how the Jews got in these countries. 330 years before Christ, when Alexander the Great overran the world, he assigned the area of Syria, which would include uh, Jerusalem, to be conquered by his great captain, Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus Epiphanes, however you choose to pronounce it. When he conquered this country, Israel, Jerusalem, he dispersed the Jews to the four winds of the Grecian, the Grecian Empire. They stayed in these areas for 300 years. They could never come back to Israel. First, they didn't have a temple. The temple had been torn down by Antiochus. And they were not allowed the privilege to come back. But under Roman rule, which occurred in, in, in 30 B.C., the Romans overran the Grecians, and a part of the Romans' effort to make friends with the Jews, they rebuilt their temple, and they allowed them the privilege of make, making uh, pilgrimages from these countries to come back to Jerusalem and observe their feast days, beginning with Passover. Now this did the second thing for those Jews, being being under the umbrella and rule of the Grecian Empire, they learned Aramaic Greek. The whole world at that time spoke Aramaic Greek as the international language. Being Hebrew, they preserved their language. They still do to this day. All Orthodox Jews still speak Hebrew. So that made them bilingual. They could speak Greek and Hebrew, all the Jews could do that at that time. Being colonized for 300 years in these various nations, they learned the third language for business purposes. Understand that? Are y'all still with me? Everybody understand that? Wave your hand. All right? So the guests, the devout men from these nations were Jews. They came to Jerusalem being trilingual, three languages they could speak. When they got there, they encountered Galileans. For the question is asked, how be it, verse 7, that these people speaking our languages are not these Galileans. Let's deal with that. The Galileans were Jews. The Bible says that. They were from the province of Galilee. That's where Jesus spent most of his ministry, Galilee. Being Roman citizens and be a part of being a part of the Greco-Roman Empire, they spoke Aramaic Greek. Being Hebrews, Jews, they could speak the second language, Hebrew. That made them bilingual, where the guests were trilingual. They had two things in common. They were all Jews, so they could speak Hebrew. 
The second thing they had in common, they could all speak Aramaic Greek. But when the Holy Ghost came down on the apostles in the 120, these Galileans, who were capable of two languages, under the anointing of the Holy Ghost, spake in the language of these people where they were born. And they said, what meaneth this? How does these Galileans speak in these tongues, which is interpreted languages there? Now, let's test the argument given against tongues by our friends. It is absurd to say that the Jews came to Jerusalem to learn these languages to go back and preach in their countries. That would be like saying we had a prayer meeting here tonight. And we had some guests from China and some guests from, from Germany and some guests from Russia and several more countries. And these people came all the way from China and Russia and, 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 and Germany and Czechoslovakia and these other nations and came to Bogalusa for us to teach them German and Russian and, 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 and the Czech language and, and the Japanese language so they could go back and be missionaries. About, about as good as we can do. But, ladies and gentlemen, if these guests came to this meeting in Bogalusa, and when the Spirit of God came down upon us, we who were just capable of English and not the best at that, and maybe a little Cajun French and not the best at that either, began to worship God and the Spirit of God energized us and we begin to speak the wonderful works of God in Russian, and some in German, and some in the Czech language, they would say, wait a minute, how did you do that? That's the phenomenon of Pentecost. They spake in tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. That's the miracle of it. And that's why they said, let's hear some more about it. And for 33 verses, Peter, either in Hebrew, which they all could understand, or in Aramaic Greek, which they all could understand, spoke to these Jews and explained, this is that that was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now let's talk about that. Joel had written hundreds of years before Pentecost. His writings was contained in the old Septuagint. The Bible says that Jerusalem, there were devout men there, their forefathers had taught them one day, Jehovah, God, is going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. They waited for that. And when they heard, this is that, they were spoken by the prophet Joel. They could relate to it. And as a result, every 3,000 received the Holy Ghost that day. Isn't the Lord wonderful? Yes. Hallelujah. Now I'll come back to this in just a moment about speaking in tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance versus the new thing called the glossolalia. I want you to understand that. I'll come back to that in a moment. Make a note of it, and I'll come back to it. In the church, as we read in the Bible, there were three functions of tongues. 
Everybody say three functions of tongues. First function was the first physical evidence of Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost baptism. Under the umbrella of first physical evidence of Holy Ghost baptism, you have cases where it was interpreted and some cases where they were not interpreted. Cases where it was understood and cases where it was not understood. Cases where they were understood was Acts chapter 2. They were definitely interpreted there. And oh, by the way, they'll ask you, does this still happen today? Yes, it does. We had some Chinese people that came from mainland China visit some people in our church who'd got the Holy Ghost. I've been teaching them the home Bible study. These Chinese people had never heard of any religion because they were raised under the Mao dynasty. And uh, they didn't know English. These guests didn't. Came to our church, and the, as I preached, these Chinese converts of ours was talking to the guests. At the end of the service, these guests came forward with these Chinese who were converted. These guests began to pray. I could tell that the Chinese people were teaching them to pray. They were praying. They received the Holy Ghost, and they spake in tongues. And guess what they spake? English. Hallelujah. And understood what they said. And just like in the book of Acts, they spoke the wonderful works of God. They were saying, Jesus is God. Hallelujah. Glory to God. He is our salvation. They spoke the glorious, wonderful works of the Lord in English. And with the Holy Ghost lifted, they couldn't talk no more English than I can speak Chinese. In the Lord good. When I built the church in Donaldsonville, uh, that was a that was a person there of the, of the Calvinist background that said, "Didn't believe in tongues, would never believe it." And I said, "Well, just you know, just sit around here." But she'd come to church on Sunday. This lady was a Spanish lady, and she said, "I'll never believe in tongues because said uh, I was taught against it." And one day there was a lady from White Castle came to the altar and received the Holy Ghost. When she spoke in tongues, she spoke perfect Spanish. And I noticed this Spanish lady got up and come over and listened. And when this woman receiving the Holy Ghost stopped speaking in tongues, this visitor who was a Spanish lady began to speak to her in Spanish and embarrassed the lady. She said, ma'am, I don't know what you're talking about. She said, I barely can speak English. She said, I don't know nothing about Spanish. She said, well, you just spoke Spanish. He said, maybe I did, but said, I don't know a word in Spanish. But the Holy Ghost did for that woman there what these guests did in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost. It still happens. All over the world it happens. God hasn't changed. He's still real. Hallelujah. So there are, there are two cases here in the Bible where they spake in tongues and it was understood or translated. Acts 2. And Acts 19, they spake in tongues and prophesied. 
two cases where they spoke in tongues and didn't. Acts 8 and Acts 10. They spoke in tongues, but it wasn't understood or translated. That's, in those two cases, and in that function, that's the first evidence of Holy Spirit baptism. And in every model in the Bible, while the Bible, because that's the only record we can go by, when they received the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, they speak in tongues, without exception. That's the first function. Now, to an established church then, and the established churches now, Paul writes the letter of Corinthians. And in Corinthians chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he deals with the other two functions of tongues. Everybody say, second function. This comes, and this is used by people who have been baptized with the Holy Ghost already. The Corinthian church had received the Holy Ghost already. Acts chapter 18, they received the Holy Ghost there, and that's where the Corinthian church was established, and that was about A.D., about A.D. 54, A.D. 54, okay? Let's read now, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. Now watch this. For he that speaketh in the unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. So Paul here says here openly that the unknown tongue is not to be interpreted. For the person speaking is not speaking unto men, they are speaking unto God. Verse 3. If I say third function, he that prophesied speaketh unto men to edification, to exhortation, and to comfort. This prophetic tongue is going to be called unknown later in this chapter because both the tongue spoken as the initial evidence of spirit baptism the unknown tongue where the person speaks to God and God speaks to him, and the tongue of prophecy is unknown in the sense that man had nothing to do with it. They speak as the Spirit gives the utterance. It's not rehearsed. It's not planned. The person speaking has no uh, prior uh, uh, planning of it. Amen. So it's unknown in the sense that it's not rehearsed, it's not practiced. It's strictly spirit, extrinically spirit. Everybody say purely, extrinically spirit. All right. Now our friends tells us that if you speak in tongues, it should be interpreted. The Bible speaks openly that all cases are not so. Remember that. Pay attention to that. Okay? Now, to a church that already had been baptized with the Holy Ghost and spoke with the initial tongue, Paul now writes and says, two more functions of tongues will come 
as a result of you being energized by the Holy Ghost. Remember, all tongues are spoken as the Spirit gives the utterance. That's how it's going to differ from a glossolalia or the prayer language. Watch me now. To you who have already received the Holy Ghost, he says, there'll come times when you will speak unto God and God will speak to you. No one understands you because you're not speaking to men. But you are edifying yourself, according to verse 4. He that speaketh an unknown tongue edifieth himself. That's where Isaiah said, and the time of refreshing would come. For we stand on the lips in another tongue to speak to his people, he says. Wherein he may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. This unknown tongue here can be spoken by an individual. And Paul says, I'd rather speak five words in an unknown tongue than this. Uh, then just, I'd rather speak five words in a known tongue than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. I'll deal with that in just a moment. Why is he saying this? The unknown tongue edifies the individual. And there are times when the individual can speak that in your private devotion, whether it be in the church or in the, in the prayer room and in the automobile at your home. Whenever you're talking to God, and, you, and, and your spirit gets to that depth to where you're lost in praise, adoration of God, as they did at Pentecost. You'll come forth in tongues. You're speaking to God, God's speaking to you. And you're being edified. Thank God for those times of refreshings, personally. Then there come times in the church, the church body, when... The Spirit of God will move through the church. The crescendo of worship and praise will get so high. Everybody will start speaking in tongues and worshiping God. And what happens? We're all refreshed. That's the second work of tongues in your life. Now for the third function. There come a time in Spirit-filled churches when something will take place in that church and it will all but seem like God himself raised his hand and said, stop. Everybody stop. Without the preacher saying a word, without, and all of a sudden something will happen. Someone over here will speak and it will make goosebumps get on your goosebumps. It almost scare you to death because they're speaking with such such depth, such power. Even the little children would be quiet. I've heard babies cry in their hush. And then on the other side, someone will speak. And the secrets of some guest or visitor or whatever, the secrets of their heart will be revealed. So accurate and so powerful that that person be, may be unlearned. The Bible refers to them as being a barbarian, unlearned. They will say of a truth, God is in this place. 
Now, that is called unknown there also later in the chapter. Okay? Later in the chapter, he's called unknown. In that, uh, in that action, okay, one is to speak, one is to interpret. No more than three will participate, verse 27. It will happen no more than three times in a service. And let me add, it will be done with accuracy. For God is not the author of confusion, Paul says in this chapter. Let everything be done decently in order. Okay? So that's the third function. In that function, no more than three will participate. One will speak, one will interpret. It will go forth no more than three times in one service, according to verse 27. Okay? Now, if there be no interpreter, let the speaker be quiet. If there be no interpreter, then we must consider that the second function of tongues, where that person has been edified, that person has been lifted up and blessed. Okay? In neither case or any case will a person project themselves. In neither case or any case will it be rehearsed. Well, that's somebody who's got a problem in the church. I think I'll give him a dose of his message and he start off speaking. And maybe on the phone that day, two people discussed that problem. And on the side, well, I know exactly who needs that. I say to thee, if you don't be he, we're going to knock you in the head. No, that's, that's flesh. That's flesh. Paul is teaching here that you've got, you got, you got three groups. You've got the believer, the body of believers that must be protected. You've got the speakers involved. And you've got the barbarian, the unlearned, that has to benefit from all of the church services. Well, brother, we don't care who's here. We're going to let, you know, Sarah, what Paul said. He said that all things be done decent in order. Yes, the body is to be edified. Yes, when the Holy Ghost moves, there will be people participate that's going to be accurate. But in all of it, what about the barbarian, the unlearned, the visitor, the guest? If it's done right, the secrets of their hearts are going to be revealed. And the power of the Holy Ghost will be so magnetic they will be drawn to God. And I've seen that happen a million times. Isn't the Lord good? Isn't the Lord good? All right. So that's what Paul is outlining here. Now he says, I think my God is speaking tongue more than you all, verse 18. Yet in the church, I'd rather speak five words with my own understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in the unknown tongue. 
Is Paul teaching against tongues here? No. That's why our friends will conveniently lift that one out of context. Quote that one first and make you go both ways in explanation. Paul's not speaking against tongues. Never did and never will. If he did, here in this verse, he's inconsistent because in the beginning of the chapter, he taught that it should be. He closes the chapter and says, uh, uh, covet the prophet's sign, verse, verse 39, and forbid not to speak with tongues, that all things be done this in order. So again, if, if he changes his doctrine here in the middle of the chapter, he's mixed up. He starts off teaching tongues, then he denies tongues and teaches tongues again. If he's denying tongues here, then he, he denies, he's wrong in teaching verse, uh, chapter 12, which teaches nine spiritual gifts. Chapter 1 said that the spiritual gifts would exist in the church under the coming of Christ. Paul's not teaching against tongues. He's showing that tongues is for us. But then he says, I think my God is speaking tongues more than you all. Yet in the church I would speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I may teach others than 10,000 words in the unknown tongue. What is he saying here? Paul visited these churches sometimes once every two or three years. When Paul came to these churches, suppose we had this establishment today and your pastor who had established this church and built this beautiful building and did so much for you, having other churches and missionary areas to go to could only come back once every two or three years. You better believe when he came back, you're going to him to talk to us and, 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 and pour his heart out to us. These people were needed to be taught. And for Paul to stand and edify himself and practice the unknown tongue that he referred to in verse 2 and verse 4 and just bless himself, spend the whole visit just blessing himself. The whole church would say, I sure wish Paul would have talked to us. It would have been nice. And suppose, uh, suppose that you, use myself for example, you employed me for three nights here to talk to you. And suppose I just got up here and from when the time your pastor introduced me, I just started speaking in tongues and, and shouting and just dancing and just shouting and praising God. And you'd shout with me for a while and, and we'd say, well, that was a great service, man. And the next night when the pastor brought me up, I just started talking in tongues and praising God. And I said, well, that's, that's good, but, but you know, I mean, I thought we were going to talk about some other things here. Paul says, when I come, it's best I speak five words that will help you make it to heaven than for me to edify myself with 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Praise God. He's not talking against tongues. There's no scripture in the Bible that's against tongues in the true sense. Everyone say, as the Spirit gives the utterance. Now let's deal with that. In all your biblical models in the scriptures, they spoke as the Spirit gave the utterance. Never on their own. It was never considered a language. They spake in tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. That's the way it was in this period of time, as we have recorded the scriptures from AD 33 to AD 96. Now, after that, many centuries after that, you have, you have evolutions of all kind of teachings and doctrines. 
That's why the historical period is so important. Because in that historical period, from now back to A.D. 96, we see in history who's responsible for the changes, for the alterations, and for the evolutions of doctrines that you don't find in the Bible. Recently, and I say recent meaning from 1960 until now, you have the evolution and the, in, in, in the, 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 the producing of a new teaching that was never known in the, in the Bible or in that historical period. And that's the charismatic teaching that involves what they call the glossolalia, or some calls the prayer language. Now the glossolalia, the word glossolalia in the Greek means languages, or tongues. Glossolalia, or languages or tongues in the biblical sense, fits what I described here prior. But in 1960, or the early 60s, I should say, Pope John XXIII, who was known as the ecumenical pope, gave himself to the, to the bringing together of all faiths back to the Catholic Church when he, when he launched the ecumenical movement. A part of the ecumenical reach, reach and effort was the introduction of the glossolalia. It was brought to America and first illustrated in Notre Dame, the, uh, Notre Dame in St. Paul, Minnesota. He did this to use it as a catalyst because for so many centuries the denominations had fought among themselves and fought the Catholics. So he introduced this as a rationalization process. Get their minds off these issues and focus on something else. And thus nullify the differences and create a ground by which all the denominations could come together on, some common grounds, something separate apart from the other issues. And thus it was taught in, in that church and from there, we get the in, intrusion into the Christian into Christendom, uh, Catholic charismatics. From there, it spread to Presbyterians, Episcopals, uh, Baptists, Methodists. Everybody nowadays wants to be Pentecostal, but yet keep their doctrine. Thus, you get Baptist charismatic, Methodist charismatic. Uh, Catholic charismatic and some Pentecostal charismatic. That thing will cost, it may cost me my job. <laughs> it won't cost anything. All right. The difference between these groups and the true apostolic believers is one speaks in tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance pure and extrinsic, pure spirit, pure worship. The others views it as an acquired language. 
Now, I know very, very, very little, little, little uh, uh, Cajun French, very little. And, uh, but whenever I, I speak it, I remember my grandmother. My grandmother taught me what few Cajun words I know. And she taught me to give a little testimony in, uh, in French. In our church, most of the people there were French. And many times they would, uh, they would testify in French. And uh, many of the old timers would stand and say, Merci, bonjour, Merci, bonjour, soir, le cet esprit. Merci, bonjour, soir, la tata préfinée, bon adieu. And all they would say, I thank God tonight for the Holy Spirit of the Holy Ghost. I thank God that time is coming to a finish, to a close. Glory to God. And when I say that, best I can, what she taught me, I always remember her teaching me that. Now, had I gone on from that and kept adding words, sentences, to my acquisition of that knowledge, eventually I would have developed my language to be fluent in Cajun French. Some of you may be bilingual tonight. Some of you may talk, speak other languages. Now, if you can, then when you speak that language, that second language, you're not speaking by inspiration. You're speaking by intellect. Okay? By intellect, and until something interrupts and interferes with your intellect, you can speak those, that language or those sentences or whatever anytime you choose. That's not inspiration. We may applaud you for your discipline to learn it, but that's not inspiration. All right? I can tell you many situations in the glossolalia or that camp that they take people, new converts, into rooms and they teach them syllables. I know this to be a fact because I got people in my church who was converted from those backgrounds and they tell me, Brother Johnson, the thing that impressed us, you never told us anything to say. So but we were taken in rooms and you just for an example, they'd say, see my tie. See my tie? Tie my tie. See my tie, tie my tie. See my tie, tie my tie. See my tie, tie my tie. See my tie. And after a while you get your tongue going so fast, you're saying something. And then they'll say, now take and add syllables to this. Add words to it. And develop your language. And they'll say, you must develop a language to pray in to keep the devil from understanding what you're saying. I hope he's listening to me tonight. I'll tell him I once served you, but you cut me a bad deal. Bruce me, rob me, let me die on. But the root of David the lion and the lamb of the tribe of Judah. My conquering king came by and lifted me up, took me out of darkness, transformed me into the kingdom of his dear son. And now I'm on the way up with my head up. Thank God for truth. We don't have to fear the devil. He that's within you is greater than he that's in the world. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run into it and safe. 
Those that he's given me fall, he says, no man, no, fo- no force can pluck them from my hand. Oh, hallelujah. I love him tonight. Yeah. Hallelujah. And the Bible says if the devil come around to bother you, resist him and he'll flee from you. When you hooked up with Jesus, honey, that was the best decision you ever made in your life. So there's no scriptural foundation at all that we should have to develop a language to pray in to protect us from the devil. That sounds good to uninformed people, but it's completely illogical when you read the scriptures. So the Bible does not use that term, glossolalia, in that sense. Nor does it teach the, the prayer language in that sense. You and I cannot speak in tongues biblically anytime we want to. You speak in tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. Everything I do, I want it based on the biblical models. Every case. Acts 2, they've been praying in the temple for seven days. Acts 8, Philip had rolled down and baptized the whole city of Samaria. Preached Christ to them, had them ready. They were waiting for the Holy Ghost. Acts 10, several days of fasting and prayer. This is the classic, Acts 19. They've been waiting for 27 years in a state of discipline and repentance, waiting And under these and in these sacred and pure environments came the power of God. And they spake in tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost here tonight. Praise God. Now, let me show you the difference. To you who have received the Holy Ghost in this room, that you receive the Holy Ghost in the same fashion, praising and worshiping God. And all at once, when you begin to worship Him and praise Him and adore Him, something came over you. It got in your hands, your feet, your mind, your body, your soul, completely electrified by His presence. And you spoke in that wonderful language. You'll never forget it. And you may not be able to take the scriptures and defend it like your pastor or some of these other ministers here tonight. But you will tell the whole world it's real. I can take you to the time and the place and show you the spot where I received the Holy Ghost. It's real. And I don't care how much they try to badger you and beat you up and criticize you. When the discussion's over, you'll still say, I'll still say it's real. Because I I know I got it. I know. Hallelujah. Are you glad tonight for a real experience in Jesus? Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Versus, versus. Suppose any of you or all of you can only remember that we took you in a room somewhere and we had our instructors tell you what to say or begin telling you what to say. And you started repeating that. And then we tell you now, just make up some words and just go along here. And when you need it, talk, speak that. Forever you would remember that occasion. 
And again, though you couldn't quote the Scriptures, and you couldn't defend yourself scripturally, you'd always scratch your head. And you'd say, now, something's not right about that. You'd say, now, I thought God would have done it. And you have the right to think that way. If God doesn't do it, leave it alone. And if God doesn't, accept it. And God still does it the Bible way. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So that's the difference between the glossolalia, the prayer language, and the real, the biblical. And concerning the biblical, as evidence of the Holy Ghost baptism, as edification, and in those special times when one would speak and one would interpret, energized and performed by the Spirit, these are situations that no one can deny. This is supposed to be in every healthy church. This is supposed to be in every healthy spiritual person's life. That you come behind in no spiritual gift waiting for the coming of the Lord. Healthy apostolic Bible services has times when these three things that I described earlier will be in their services and in their personal lives. And when it happens as I described it in the scriptures, we all go away refreshed, our faiths built higher, us knowing that God was with us in that personal prayer meeting or in that service, God was with us. And as a result of God being with us and performing this, new faces will continually be added to our church. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a hunger in this world tonight for the real like I've never seen it in my life. And there's something boiling, bubbling here in this church tonight that's fixing to explode. As we come to give to what the Bible says and stand firmly on God's saith the word of God. And when you stand firmly on God's saith the word of God, God will confirm his word every time all of heaven's behind you. Ooh, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Verses. And when I get on this side of the auditorium, I'm not saying that you folks are in this category. I'm just using this to make my point. Versus those situations across America and around the world that has no resemblance to true Pentecost. I can understand why some of the denominations are very cautious about the loose usage of the word Pentecost. Some of the things that's op being operated and conducted right now under the umbrella of the word Pentecost will scare anyone to death. Yes, sir. Now, we had a man in our church get the Holy Ghost the other night, and he got it the old-fashioned way. Now, if I tell you the background of that boy, he, he was rough. He come from a family of, 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 of barroom brawlers. 
They loved to fight. When they wasn't fighting, they'd drive down the road and drag their knuckles on the pavement just to keep them in shape. That's not almost the truth. That is the truth. They bad. <laughs> but when this boy got the Holy Ghost, kneeling down on his knees, he was just weeping. And all at once, he began to speak in tongues. And as he was speaking in tongues, weeping, he was laughing at the same time. Brother, Brother Super, that was the funniest thing. He just rocking back and forth. He was, he was weeping, he was laughing, and speaking in tongues all at once. And the glory of God filled that house. Yeah. I've seen people get so anointed in the Holy Ghost. They just get drunk in the Holy Ghost. And then I've known of some, back on this side again, of the equation. I might say you folks like this over here, but on this side of the equation. I've seen some on the other side, the glossolalia side of the equation. And then people's always pulling some new rabbit out the hat. You know what I'm saying? Now they've got this thing of giggling. Hysterical, just giggling. <laughs> and the same boy that got the Holy Ghost I told you about tonight that got it laughing and crying and worshiping at the same time, they invited him to this church where they did this other. And they told this boy, said, well, we got the same thing at our church. Come see. Well, he didn't know. He told me where he was going, and I didn't say a thing. I said, you'll, you'll see. No problem. When you get the real thing, you don't have to worry about anything else. When I was raised in Melville, had a bicycle, I thought I had the best. Until the Lord gave me an Electra 225 Buick. So I'll never go back to a bicycle again. <laughs> Hallelujah. And they had imported this guy, this speaker, from Australia. That sounds fancy, doesn't it? And they get these guys that speaks these, with these accents. And that's supposed to authenticate everything that's questionable. And this guy got up, this boy told me, and waved his finger. And the whole pew began to giggle. Just <laughs> and said they fell out on the floor. Ladies fell indecently. Just giggling and just and after a while the whole church was just, just giggling hysterically. This new convert said, told his wife, said, uh-uh, said something ain't something ain't right here. This ain't what I got. And he wasn't what he got. If a barbarian comes into your service and the secrets of his heart is revealed, he will say the truth. God's in this place. Hallelujah. And anything that's man-made like that's not going to be right. So that giggling off-the-wall things. The Bible didn't teach that. You know, you just can't turn tongues on like you do the water spigot. It's got to be produced by the Spirit. Yeah. Or not only you doubt that, 
the unlearned says, uh-uh, this is not right. Something's wrong here. See? So the, 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 the prayer language thing and the glossolalia thing, as I've described it here, and I'm not trying to make fun of people, I'm trying to convey them a point. That didn't come into existence until about six, uh, 1960. That was introduced, too, by the Catholic Church. And it spread like wildfire through her daughters. All of you need to take in consideration chapter 17 of Revelation. Let's turn there. Revelation chapter 17, verse 8. The beast that thou sawest is not, and shall ascend out of the bottom of the pit, and go into petition. And they that dwell on the face of the earth shall wonder, whose names are not written in the book of life. And so those people whose names are not written in the book of life, they can be swept in and under by those kind of false doctrines. Brothers and sisters, just because that exists, let us not turn the truth off. Now, I've described both sides here tonight, the real and the pretended or the, or the, or the counterfeit. But there are situations where we get so paranoid and so fearful of the counterfeit that we're not careful, we'll restrict the authentic. There's a balance there. There's a balance there. Sure, there's always been false teachings, but there cannot be a counterfeit unless there is a truth. You know why there are counterfeit dollars and people making counterfeit dollars? They're trying to duplicate these real ones. But do you think I'm going to take these three and just throw them away? Because I know that there's some counterfeit dollars out there. No, sir, buddy. I work for these three. They're real. I'm keeping them right there in my pocket as long as I can. And I don't care how many counterfeit they make in, in Hong Kong and, and, and wherever, no problem. They've still got some real mints going in America, and I'm going to stay with those. 